Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm really, really excited to be joined by Adam Gray, who is a fixture in this event industry, worked many, many games, and I'm super excited to have you on, Adam, joining us all the way from Australia. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good, Christian. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's really nice to be asked. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, and I'm looking forward to talking about all things Salt Lake. But before we dive into Salt Lake City, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on what you're currently up to these days? Okay, well, living in uh, living in Canberra, which I guess a lot of people don't know is the capital of Australia. It's not Sydney; it's Canberra. <laughs> Uh, about three hours south. So um, living here with uh, Anna and uh, Henry and Sophie, our kids, um, but working uh, mostly for the IOC now um, as uh, venues advisor for them. Been doing that for quite a while, and uh, and that involves or involved uh, lots of trips to Tokyo and um, and to Beijing. So uh, still doing that, uh, albeit remotely. So I've been probably their venues advisor since uh, I want to say probably two thousand and twelve. There are, and uh, so really going in and, and helping out the Okogs, um, starting with Beijing and then Pyeongchang and then now um, uh, Tokyo and uh, Beijing. Well, how are you doing that remotely? It's uh, it, you know it's 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 a challenge. I mean, you know, my last trip to Tokyo was March of last year, and so I knew things were changing with uh, with COVID. So got home and then Australia shut its borders you know, literally thirty six hours later. And uh, but up until that point, I was going to Tokyo twice a month, and and Beijing probably every three months, um, helping them out. So, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of what I do as as all the IOC advisors is that um, on the one hand, you're you're really assessing their progress, you're really helping them um, think about the things that perhaps they they have not thought about and the things that they they need to consider, and and really assessing their planning. But the other part is really you you. You're acting as a bit of a mentor and a, a you know a, a, a trusted friend, if you like, to try and help them understand this this journey that they're on and to help them understand the things. What's it going to be like at games time? Um, so without the travel, that that face to face you don't have, and so it's all remote and it becomes a bit more, um, I guess, a, a little bit more academic where you. You can assess drawings, you can assess plans, but you don't have the chance to really have those sort of one-on-one conversations with people and 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 help them feel a bit more comfortable about this thing that they're working on, which is which is as we all know so complex and a little bit a little bit frightening at times. So that that personal content makes it that that lack of personal contact makes it more difficult. Um, but hopefully that we're, we're seeing, you know, with the vaccine, maybe that's maybe things will change in the next few months. We hope so. I certainly hope so too. What's your plans for Tokyo during games time? Are you going to be down there supporting them? Yeah, the the, the plan is I'll be there. Um, you know, last year I would have been there probably a month before the games, just helping them out with the final, the final plans. You know, doing venue walkthroughs, which is really a physical um, assessment and uh, uh, of the of the venue readiness. Um, so the plan is to still do that, um, but nothing's finalized yet and um but i would expect that you know i'll probably be there in sometime in in june 
um, and probably a trip there beforehand subject to, you know, international travel. But, yeah, the plan is to be there on the ground and, and, uh, and help them through and, and be a bit of a resource uh, for them, for the venue teams in particular. Well, I do hope that you can make it down there and you don't have to quarantine for weeks at a time before you can actually do anything so you can be productive. You know, I think the games are going to come off and they're going to be fine. It'll be curious. I'm very, very curious to see what they look like at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, we're we're still working on them. Um, you know, I have uh, I have conference calls with them each week, and um, and really our role right now is to is helping them adjust um, or or re- refine their their venue operating plans as a result of COVID. So, um, what Tokyo 2020. Um, has been doing is they've been releasing um, these uh, these playbooks, playbooks for each of the stakeholders, which are basically COVID guidelines for the athletes and for the spectators and uh, the broadcasters, the, so the the, uh, the press and the broadcasters. So there's a really a playbook for each of the stakeholders that's gradually being published, and, and in that that sets out um, the the countermeasures for COVID and therefore the impact on on, on the games and how they're going to operate. So they're not fully complete yet. Um, there's still some work to be done. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the expectation absolutely is the games will go ahead, um, albeit, um, different. And, um, you know, what's the cap on spectators? Are we at a hundred percent or we're at 75 or we're at 50. So some of those things are unknown yet. Um, but we're planning on full stadia right now. And um, the next few months, uh, you know, the, the plans will be adjusted according to advice from the WHO and from the the, uh, the Japanese government as well about um, what measures need to be put in place. But yeah, I'm, we're really confident games will happen, um, and I think it's important that you know, with the vaccine starting to be rolled out successfully around the world, and there's a really good results, and there's um, governments are seeing the uh, uh, the the really positive benefits that the vaccines are having that it's giving everyone, you know, a lot of confidence that the games will happen, but they'll be different a little bit and, um, but really important they go ahead. So I think they will. Well, I hope that it works out similar to what happened with Salt Lake city, you know, 2002 and we won't get into the 2002 games yet, but uh, if we recall, following September 11th, there was a lot of doubt about the games going forward, and they turned out to be a tremendous celebration. And hopefully, the same can happen in Tokyo. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think um, you know, Salt Lake was a bit of a marker um, after September 11th. It, it was, you know, the due diligence, due diligence was there about whether the game should proceed and and can they proceed and should they and and then a season that, as we know, as, the, as they did and, and, you know, what a great success they were. But I think it was important for the world to – it was important for the – it helped the world get back to normal um, post 9-11. And I think Tokyo um, 2020 will be the same. I think it will be one of the, the first big events um, that will sort of indicate that the world's opening back – opening up again into what I guess will be a new norm. Uh, we, you know, we saw a sense of that with the Australian Open, the tennis that uh, that's just been finished in Melbourne um, last week. So I think these things are important. I think we we have to get to a point where we learn to live with this uh, with this virus, and uh, like we learn to live, like the world's learned to live with a lot of other viruses um, over time. So I think this 
this is obviously a much more uh, a much more challenging pandemic. But I think you know there's there's some good signs there, and I think for lots of reasons the games will go ahead, and they and, and they can go ahead safely, albeit with some some pretty good countermeasures in place that will protect everyone. All right. Well, fingers crossed for Tokyo 2020. Before we get to Salt Lake, I've been asking this question this year. It's the marooned on an island question, which I guess you have been marooned on a very large island for the last year. <laughs> Australia shut its borders, but let's pretend that you're marooned on an island like Tom Hanks and Castaway. Uh-huh. You've got one meal, one movie, one album in no particular order. What would you want to have with you on that island? Well, you know, one meal, you know, I, I guess lasagna. I, I could eat anything Italian, but uh, lasagna would be, I could live with that. Uh, a movie, um, probably anything by Will Ferrell. Um, it probably would be uh, Get Hard, where he's getting prepared to go to prison. And um, But if it was a TV show, it would be Seinfeld. Um, so either of those would be pretty good. And um and the other one, the, the album would be Dire Straits. I think Sultan's a swing. And, uh, you know, I talk to my kids about music and I listen to their music. <laughs> I try, sometimes try and steer them back to the old stuff and they, they just say it's not music, Dad. And, but anyway, it'd be Dire Straits. That's so funny about the music. Yeah, I just a couple of weeks ago had my, my son put together a playlist of quote-unquote modern music for me because I really am clueless when it comes to the modern music. And, uh, yeah, I didn't recognize practically any of the artists or, or, um, the songs on there. And so there definitely is a generation gap, although our children are starting to gain an appreciation for some of the older stuff. So I appreciate the dire straits. Okay. Ready to dive back into Salt Lake 2002. Let's go. Let's do it. So how does an Australia boy get to Salt Lake City? <laughs> well, it was, I, I, I tell you, it was interesting. It's, um, you know, I just worked on the, I just worked on the Sydney, the Sydney game. So I was uh, venue manager of aquatics, which was a big venue. Um, you know, it's a big sport for Australia. So I was swimming. Um, and so I was the, the VM for that. And then I had, there was a delegation from uh, Salt Lake that came um, down to Sydney. And um, you know, led by Doug Arnott and uh, and, and a bunch of others, and um, Chris Crowley being one. And so, you know, they they, they came to the Aquatic Centre, and um, I'd been in some discussion with Doug about um, potentially coming to Salt Lake, which which I was really excited about. I knew nothing about skiing, and uh, um, but I was really keen to go and do uh, continue on the, the Olympic um, journey. Having just done the uh, summer games, and uh, Doug invited me to to come to Salt Lake to work on uh, on, on those games, which was which was really exciting. And um, he he originally asked me to become the the VGM at Deer Valley. So the original plan was for to to be running Deer Valley, but um, but after a couple of weeks, he um, asked if I'd move to to Snow Basin. So which was which I was really happy to do. I didn't have a clue. It, it didn't make any difference to me about. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the speed events or, uh, you know, the, um, you know, GS and slalom, or, uh, it didn't make any about freestyle or, or aerials made no difference to me. So I, I was just happy to be there and I didn't, it didn't really bother me which venue it was cause I didn't know anything about the sport anyway. So it didn't matter. All right. Well then give us a little bit of sense of the timing. 
Sydney ends. Yeah. Do you take a little break, a little bit of a holiday, then come over to Salt Lake? When did you end up coming to Salt Lake City? Yeah, I came. Uh, so I think the, the Sydney Olympics finished about the, I want to say the first or second of October uh, 2000. Um, and then we did the Paris, the Paralympics. So by the time of, um, by the end of October thereabouts, I was finished with Sydney 2000. And I had um, had about a month at home. So the month of uh, November and then really flew across very late uh, November or very early December. So sort of December 1, I was, uh, I was in Salt Lake. You came over before the Christmas holidays then? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Did you come yeah. over by yourself or did you bring your family along with you? I didn't have a family at that point. So, uh, you know, I just met, um, I just met, um, uh, Anna. So I'd met, I'd met this lady that was working with me on, uh, on Sydney and, um, actually Anna, uh, who became my wife, she was a volunteer at, uh, at the aquatic center. So that's how we met. And I'd met her a few months before the games and I thought that, that, uh, she's a nice person and, uh, someone that I was interested in. So I encouraged her to come and uh, volunteer for the Sydney 2000 Games and she ended up at my venue. So we, you know, we, we, uh, we liked each other. And, um, but then here, here was I, I'd, I'd taken a job to move to Salt Lake City. So the timing wasn't ideal. So I left, I flew out to Salt Lake and the plan that was, uh, the plan was that Anna would join me at Christmas time uh, and spend Christmas uh, with, with me in Salt Lake. So that was the plan. That is an excellent plan. <laughs> so you got to tell me how that all worked out. You come here to Salt Lake City. Before we get into the specifics of the job, I mean, Salt Lake City is a different place. Yes, you speak English, but we drive on the different side of the road and it's very cold here as compared to Sydney. So what was your first impressions when you came here to Salt Lake City? Oh, I, I loved it. I mean, it's uh, the cold never has never bothered me, but you know, cold over there is cold. It's, you know, it's, it's minus, you know, get to minus 25 or what, as you guys will know. So that didn't, it really excited me. I love, I love, um, I love being outdoors. So I love the country. And so, you know, I was really excited to be coming to, coming to Salt Lake was a part of the, well, I'd never been to the U S so, but really happy to move. And, um, I thought what a, what a great opportunity to go and do something that's completely different, something I had no clue about. And, you know, as I said, just done the Olympics and I thought, well, you know, I'd like to keep on going in this. And, um, you know, the, the sports that you have in winter games are just, you know, they're, they're unusual, you know, bobsled and, and ski jumping and, uh, and biathlon. So it's, there's some really, some different sports that are pretty interesting. Well, I do have to ask, did Anna like Salt Lake City? You say, okay, she can come over for Christmas. She's like, come over here. Did she give it her blessing? Was it okay? What were her thoughts? Well, it, it, it's interesting, and you know, some of I don't think many people know the story, but the plan was Anna was going to come at Christmas time, so she'd fly on out. So Anna's a school teacher, and um, and I thought, well, then I thought about, it, I thought, well, when she comes here, I'm going to propose to her. I, we'd only been going out for like six weeks, and uh, and I thought this is a, this is the person I want to marry. So there's no qu- there's no question in my mind, and I thought, well, okay. Um, when she comes out at Christmas time, I'll propose and, uh, and, and that'll be the way it happens. I got on the plane and, uh, you know, on the, on December one or whatever it was to fly to Salt Lake from Sydney. 
and I was thinking through the the logistics of this all. I'm trying to be an event guy, and I'm thinking, well, you know, if I if I propose to her when Anna gets to Salt Lake, then she's got her either quit her job. It's in the middle of the summer holidays, so the school system shut down. Um, the best thing would be to do would be for her to quit before, or really ideally get leave of absence, so it keeps her job open for the period of time that we're in Salt Lake. So it'd be better that she knew about this, my plan, before she gets on a plane before before the school year ended. So, you know, it was really romantic and um, the first phone call home. So I landed on the Friday, went to, went to the office that afternoon at Slock, and uh, the next morning we a bunch of us drove up to, to uh, Park City to go skiing. And at lunchtime, I said, I just got to go make a phone call and, and, and call my girlfriend. And everyone thought, well, come on, you only just got here. You only been here for a day and you're already calling back home. And it was on that phone. And I, but I, the plan was to, to propose to her over the phone. So that thinking that that would give her a chance, if she said yes, that would give her a chance to talk to the education department and put a plan in place so that I didn't, you know, didn't ruin her, her, her teaching career. So I did. She was at her parents' place. And um, but Dad answered, which which was kind of good. Anna still tells the story that she knew it was me on the phone, but she couldn't figure out while I'm talk why I'm talking to her dad, dad a lot about Salt Lake real estate, you know, because I was ringing from up in Park City. They were chatting about ten minutes about that sort of stuff. I don't know why. And then eventually I asked, and I said, "Look, you know, I, I'd like to marry your daughter, and I'd you know I'd like to ask for your blessing." And he said, "Yes," and. And uh, and then Anna got on the phone, and everyone was really surprised. And no, I don't think her parents were surprised, but a lot of her family hadn't met me. A lot of her friends hadn't met me. It happened really quickly. So that's so Anna said yes, luckily for me. And uh, then she got on the plane, and she flew. I think she landed in Salt Lake at about on the twenty third of December. And and my parents and my middle brother was working at a hospital in uh, in Buffalo, in upstate New York. He's a doctor. So he was there for like six months. So he was there with his family. Mum and dad met up with them for Christmas and the plan was that I would fly up to Buffalo, but I actually flew up there with Anna as my, uh, as my fiancé. So, so that's how it happened. And, you know, the following March we got married back in, back in Australia. We came home for a week and then flew back to Salt Lake. So that's, the, that's, the, that's my Olympic marriage proposal story. That is so cool. I love this story. I'm so glad that you shared it. It is so interesting. We've had several people on the podcast who ended up either meeting spouses in Salt Lake or they had met before but got married in Salt Lake or got married shortly after Salt Lake and then started families. And so I really appreciate you sharing that little bit of family history with us today, too. No worries. I think that's awesome. All right. Let's get back to the to the job at hand, which is a Salt Lake 2002. So you come in. From aquatics, mm -hmm. liquid water, to snow basin, frozen water <laughs> on a ski slope. What kind of adjustment was that? Well, I tell you, when, when Doug Arnott offered me the job in Sydney and I said yes, he flew back. Um, he flew back to Salt Lake and announced to, to Kathy Priester and to Herbie Demshaw, you know, I've just found the guy to come across and you know, he's going to be the VGM for Deer Valley. And, and 
apparently, well, I've been told this from, from multiple people, including Hervig, that when Hervig's reaction was, um, he said, you've just employed this fucking Australian who only knows about snow in the unfrozen state. What are you doing? <laughs> so he he wasn't so happy that this Australian that just run aquatics didn't know anything about skiing um, was coming across to, to, to run that venue. So uh, it, it that was his reaction that, that I, I think over time that changed. Um, but it was a challenge because, you know, you're going from a summer games, as you say, to a winter games. I'm going from an indoor venue to an outdoor venue, summer to winter and and in a sport that I had no clue about. But I, I felt confident in the sense that, um, yes, I need to understand the sport. I need to understand what the athletes need. I need to understand the the operational challenges. I need to understand how the venue needs to be prepared and how, how it needs to be ready and the types of things that can go wrong as a result of the weather in particular. But I don't need to run the competition. That's not my job. So I'm I'm everything outside the, the fence. I'm everything outside the field of play. So once it's outside the A net, the B net, and all the safety stuff, I'm responsible for that stuff. But everything that's on the on the white strip, um, that's not me. And, and it'd be totally different if 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 I was running the competition, and that that wouldn't work. But under the Olympic model of having VGMs who run who support the the sport competition manager and, and the support them in their work with the IF and the athletes. Um, our job is to make sure that everything around them um, is done correctly and operates correctly so that they can focus on the athletes and the competition. And um, But still, it was an adjustment and not to say I was a bit nervous was you know be, would be correct. Um, but my view was I would listen to people. You know, I, I wouldn't come in there as this guy that had just done the Olympic Games and and tell people how this is how it's going to be because I, I knew one I'm an Australian coming into I'm a guest in your country so one I'm a I'm a foreigner two I have no history in the sport so I need to I need to make sure that people uh, see me as someone who's going to listen and I'll support and I'll listen to the experts and I'll, I'll my job was to support them in their job uh, in in the case of Spencer Eccles was a great great guy became a great friend as the competition manager, my job was to support him in whatever he needed to, to run the competition and to make sure the venue was set up in the way that it was going to support, you know, the games. All right. So you mentioned you didn't have any history in the sport. You didn't have any knowledge of the sport. It is funny that we had Herving on last week and, uh, and he told us about you coming on board and his initial skepticism, but you did make a believer out of Herving because in part you came from Sydney who followed a very detailed discipline approach to planning and delivering those games. So clearly Doug saw something in you and there was a lot, I mean, Sydney became a model for several games editions. So tell us about bringing that Sydney model over with you. And there were some other people that came over from Sydney as well. And then adapting that to meet the circumstances here in Salt Lake city. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I say to people, an event is an, an event is an event, and and what happens on the field of play is is largely the difference. But there's a there's a process, there's a methodology, there's a there's a discipline of, of project management of these sort of mega events that we all do, and you know the same process applies whether it's indoor venue, outdoor venue, summer games, winter games, a G twenty, a G eight. It's there's a lot of it that's similar, 
you know, you've got technology, you've got a field to play, um, you've got transport, you've got security, you've got food and beverage, you've got cleaning and waste. So you've got all those components that are largely similar across all of the events. You know, coming from Sydney to, to Salt Lake, you know, the venues were all, all of that sort of venue operational stuff was, was largely the same. We had, but we had to re- I had to recognise in particular the, the differences of going from a summer, summer event to a winter event, and that was a, that was a challenge. But the dif- the discipline of of of, of delivering a, a major event is the same. I think the one of the things that we got right in Sydney, which was always the plan, was to build the venues early, and we were largely done about a year before the games. So the built infrastructure was there, and and that's a big that's a big weight off your mind if you know your venues ready. It's built. And in, in many games and many events, it's not always the case, and it adds a level of complexity and it adds a level of uncertainty that you don't know what you're going to be left with to operate. Um, so that's one of the things that we did in Sydney. And I think one of the mantras from Sydney was we 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 focused on the nice to haves. We we the, sorry, we focused on the must haves versus the nice to haves. And I think that's been a, a sort of a, a phrase that's been used by. Um, Organising committees since Sydney focus on the must-haves, and and if we've got the budget and we've got the time, then we can maybe come back to some of the things that would be the nice to do, or the nice to have. But the must-haves, if you've got to have a field of play, it's it's fit for purpose, it's Olympic standard, everything's got to work. You've got to take care of the athletes, you've got to take care of the stakeholders, and and once you've got those core things right, so the once you identify those core things that are part of the the operating plan, the things that you have to deliver, and do them well. Then, if you've got time and if you've got budget, come back to the must-haves, but only if, and don't do it the other way around. I, I think one of the things that my old, my old boss John Quayle from Sydney said to me, and, and all of the other VGMs or VMs as we were called then in Sydney, was he said, "I'm going to teach you how to say no." And <laughs> we, we all thought that at the time, well, you know, we know, we know how to say no. And he said, but what he made it clear to us was that as you get closer to the event. Uh, you're going to get multiple people, multiple stakeholders, whether it's the IF, whether it's the broadcasters, whether it's the press, whether it's whoever, um, coming to you requesting things. And they all have a, a, a – their focus is on their narrow field of focus, which as it should be, in case of OBS um, or SOBO as they were called then, it's on broadcast. And for the IF, it's the athletes. And, and that's how it should be. But he said, your job as a VM is to look broadly and to make sure to look across all of the all of the stakeholders and all of the functional areas within your venue, and to make sure that whatever decision you make is for the is for the benefit of the venue. And so you have to look at it with a bit of a broader perspective. And I think that's the thing that VMs needed to have and 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 and, and should have is to assess every request that comes to them through that. That sort of lens, is it the right thing for the venue? Um, does it disadvantage any other functional area by me saying yes to this? Do we have the budget for it? So it's being able to step back. So saying no uh, was important because there are times where if if it didn't meet this sort of venue test, if you like, um, for the the benefit of the venue, um, you had to say no. And sometimes it was no because yeah, it's a great idea, I'd love to do it, but we don't have the money. Or sometimes it was. Uh, it's not a great idea and it's not something that's the best thing for the venue or for the games or for the organising committee. So, And that was a challenge because everyone everyone becomes a great negotiator. It was like having three-year-old kids. 
they're really they're really they're persistent and they come at you and they just keep going with their request and sometimes you you want to be able to say yes but you know as long as you can uh, you've got the right reason so i think that was important but the discipline of the major event planning um the other thing coming out of sydney was don't go back over your operating plan all the time we we finished out of the ops pretty early and the and the challenge the 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 risk is for some people, oh, let's just go back and refine that planning. Let's go back and ask some more questions again. At some point, your planning's done because if you keep on going back over it, there's a chance that you'll start changing the plan and that becomes a bit confusing for people. So once you've got a solid plan, resist the tendency to go back and redo it. And then once you've got a solid plan, then you refine, you refine, and you test and you test. So the contingency planning becomes really important. And that, that's probably the biggest um, change from a summer games to winter games, certainly coming from a summer indoor venue to a winter outdoor venue, was the proportion of time my venue time and team and I spent on contingency planning. You know, aquatics, we had a roof. We knew that if we were scheduled to start at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, we would start at 9 o'clock because we had a roof and there was really nothing that was going to happen that, you know, we might have to, you know, there'll be really no weather event that would prevent us um, starting on time. Whereas at Snow Basin, there was never any guarantee. And it was the same for Deer Valley and Park City for, for, and for, for Nordic to a degree. But any of the outdoor venues, you never had certainty about what the weather was going to do. And being in the mountain environment, yeah, and so you had to prepare for that. So the, the proportion of contingency planning um, was much higher than I'd been used to at the aquatics, and I'd been used to the I'd been used to the, the process and the discipline, but certainly not the scenarios in the and the the amount of weather scenarios that we're going to do delays and postponements. Okay, so who makes the decision to postpone? Is it is it the VGM? Is it the jury? Is it the TD? Is it you know the IF? So you go through all of that sort of stuff. So heavy um, heavy proportion on contingency planning. That was the big one. You've given us a lot to unpack there, Adam. So I'm going to do my best. I'm going to ask a series of questions based on what you've just said. The first question is this. Well, actually, I'm going to start with a statement or a comment. And I've said this on a few other podcasts, too. I think Salt Lake City was a huge beneficiary of people coming over from Sydney. We had people from Atlanta. We had people who worked World Cup 94. We had people who worked Lillehammer, some who worked Nagano. Uh, we had some people who worked Women's World Cup in 89. There, there was this uh, confluence of all of these people, plus the local talent who had not worked any games. And I think that contributed to uh, what ultimately was a very well-executed games here in Salt Lake City. Coming back to the no, being able to say no or learning to say no, what were some examples of requests that you got where you're just like, nope, we're not going to do that? And were there any examples of requests that came in? And you're like, you know what? That's actually not a bad idea. Maybe we should give that a shot. I think um, one of the requests that, that came to me, and it came from Spence, Spence Eccles, um, we, we needed some more snow cats and, and we needed winch cats in particular. And I think at that time, the, the price of a winch cat was about a quarter of a million um, US, somewhere between 250 and 300,000. And he wanted another four or five. So it was a it was a bigger request, and and it was at a time close to the games when budget was tight, 
Um, and, and that was a, that was a time when, you know, I sat with Spencer and I said, just tell me why you need it. And, and if I understand it better, um, then I can go on a bat for you. Um, because it was a, we had to go, you had to go and see uh, Fraser and uh, Fraser, a great guy and a great CFO. And, but we had to present a case we were asking for, I think it was around $2 million. And, and it had been made clear to, to Slock that money was tight. We didn't really have, you know, our planning was done, our procurement was done. But Spence uh, and, and also with Herbig were able to um, help me understand where we needed these snow cats, uh, winch cats, and, and why. And, and we and built a good case and, and went and saw Fraser. And, and Fraser, to his credit, we spoke for a few minutes and within about 30 seconds he said, okay, all right, let's get that done. And that's where Fraser was such a, such a great CFO and a great leader. Um, he, he was a great listener. Um, he, would, he would understand an issue really quickly and before you've even finished, you know, before you've even finished presenting. So he would, he would understand the, the real issue quickly and he would make a decision and be decisive. So that's where he was great. And, and in an organising committee, you need people like that who can make a decision and, uh, and, and do it quickly. So that's an example where um, we went in and uh, said yes and I'll support you on that. Um, and I'm, I'm just trying to think of when I said no, but it, it uh, I, nothing springs to mind, um, but maybe it will come back to me because I'm sure no. it did. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Okay, now let's come back to another component that you talked about, which was the contingency planning. So you mentioned that you had a lot more scenarios here with an outdoor venue in the wintertime. So what were some of those contingencies and did you actually have to execute some of those contingencies during games time? Yeah. I mean, it's, we, and for me, it was about, um, and this is where I really had to spend a lot of time with uh, Spence and Herbie is that the more that I understood the sport, the more, and, and what, what would cause a delay or a postponement to the sport, the more I could sort of help prepare the team, which then became the basis of the scenario. So, so we, we spent a lot of time on weather. Um, and, and for, for Alpine skiing, uh, for the speed events in particular, it's, it's not enough snow. It's too much snow. Um, it's wind. Um, it's, it's snowing conditions. Uh, it's visibility because of the speeds that they're doing. So anything that impacts visibility either, either through snow um, or poor light and wind is a big one too. And, and it's not only because, but it's also at elevation too, because you've got a big snow base. And I think we, you know, we, our start uh, elevation was, uh, was about 9,500 feet. And uh, so, you know, the elevation, the vertical was almost 3,000, it was about 2,800. So you're on a mountain and you can get different weather conditions at different parts of the mountain. That was the issue. So the conditions at the bottom are not necessarily the conditions you got at the top. And we, and so, so it's not just saying we've got a storm coming in or we've got wind. Well, where is the wind and what time is it coming and what's the strength and what's the, the average wind speed and what's it going to likely gust to? So we had a, a weather forecaster at the at the venue, um, as did Park City and uh, and Deer Valley, because weather was such a a big impact on the sport. 
And and when you've got a when you've got a big mountain and all that vertical, you can get different weather conditions in different parts because you've got jumps. So if you had some wind at the top, um, but you didn't have wind at the the jumps, maybe it wouldn't be such a problem. Um, but a wind at a jump is 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 tough, and it's the direction of the wind too. Is it a headwind? Is it a tailwind? Is it a crosswind? So when you've got an athlete that's doing eighty miles an hour and and a jump, and they're flying two hundred feet. It's pretty important to know whether it's a tailwind or a headwind or a crosswind. So there's all these sort of variations or variables. When you just say wind, it's direction, elevation, gust, all that stuff. So I learned that quickly that the the sport is impacted hugely um, by weather, and um, and so that we built our scenarios around that. And so we were really well practiced. Um, I mean, the, the the first test event. Um, in uh, so we were, we were scheduled to hold a test event in February of 2001. Um, we had too much snow, so we had like eight or nine feet or ten feet um, in about the 24-hour period before the test event, and then it just continued to snow and snow throughout the test event. So we didn't get the race off, which was really disappointing because the volunteers worked so hard. They cleared the course because you got to scrape. You got to get all the snow that falls off the course because you want to get down to its race condition, which is basically, basically a vertical ice. It's like an ice rink because it's been water injected. So you got to you got to clear all the snow off. You know, um, a, a course that's like two point eight miles long. You know, by about sixty meters. And I know I'm doing a metric too imperial here, but um, you got you got a large area to clear. And we just couldn't do it because we'd clear it, then it'd snow again, and we'd clear it, it'd snow again, and we didn't get the race off. So that was my first experience about, okay, too much snow. I mean, and in the games itself, I think uh, I think it was the women's Super G um, that we postponed. So it's a bluebird day. It's one of those great Salt Lake days. It's cold, blue sky. Um, we'd loaded the venue so all of the spectators were in. So we had our 22,500 spectators, a big venue. Everyone was in. No wind at the bottom, but wind at the top. And so the, the decision was made by the, the jury to, um, to delay based on the weather forecast. We had too much wind at the top, but there was no wind at the bottom. So the spectators couldn't quite understand it. So we delayed a couple of times through the course of the session. And it gets to a point where I think our start time was about 11 a.m. And the session itself was about the race was going to go for about 90 minutes. So there comes a time, a point in time where you can delay and delay and delay, but you've got to finish the race by about 3.30, thereabouts. That was for us because you start to lose the light. So the sun dips, up, dips over the mountains and you'll get pockets of shadow uh, on the course, which, again, you don't want because, again, it's a visibility. So athletes coming from light into shadow and into light at speed. So we knew... On any of our days, we had to finish racing by about 3.30 to make sure that it was safe condition. So you can keep on pushing, you can keep on delaying the start time up until maybe 2 o'clock so that you know you can finish a 90-minute race, 90-minute session by about 3.30. Anyway, long story short, uh, the wind didn't, didn't let up. The forecast was that it was not going to let up. It was going to continue. So the, the decision was to, to postpone to the next day and you know people couldn't understand it so because it was it was beautiful conditions at the bottom but it was dangerous at the top 
so that's where you, you know the, we had to be really good with our sport presentation announcements to the spectator to help them understand because a lot of them are there for the Olympics, maybe seeing their first ski race, and help them understand this is the nature of the sport. These are the things that you know it can affect and it makes it dangerous for the athletes. So that was really disappointing because we were ready to go, um, but we had to come back the next day, and then you you go into your <laughs> You delay postponement procedures. You, you go into your scenarios about what do you tell the spectators? Well, please hold your ticket because it'll be good for tomorrow when we reschedule it. So it's all of that process that we pre-planned that in the event of delay postponement, not not just what it means to the athlete, but what does it mean for the ticket spectator? Is that is the ticket good for tomorrow, or do they do they get a refund? Or they what do they do? So we it, you know we've done all that work. So. They, can't, they could come back the next day if they were able to and use the same ticket. I'm sure you've got a billion stories. I typically ask people about a goosebump moment, but before I do, I know you've written things down on your list and I want to make sure we get those. So what other stories or experiences do you have on your list that you want to share with us today? Well, there's one that many people will not know. There's a handful of people that will know. My wife does. So it was the first time I went skiing at Snow Basin. So it was uh, it was before the games. So this was probably I don't know, it's probably January of 2001. I learned I'd never skied in my life. You know, I'd never really seen snow, so I think people know that. But um, I had my first ski at Park City. But the first time I went to uh, to Snow Basin to ski, I was with Jim Brown, uh, Richard Bezemer, uh, Callum Clark, um, a Cra- Chris Crowley was with us, uh, my wife, and, and their respective partners. So it was a group of about eight or ten of us skiing at Snow Basin. I'd never skied there before. I think it was the second time on skis for me. So we caught the chairlift up, and I'm sitting on the chairlift, and every t- you know we, we're going up and up and up, and I'm thinking, okay. I'm not feeling so good because I got to get back down, and I'm not confident that I can get back down. So we get off the chairlift, um, and everyone takes off, and I start to ski down, and I realise I'm. It was a blue run, but you know at Snow Basin the blues are sort of dark blue, and I I, I was not. Uh, you know I was scared. There's no, there's no question. I was scared. So I did the worst thing I could do, which Herbert told me later, is I took my skis off and walked back up because I thought, I can't get down. Everyone, because everyone had just taken off. Hannah stopped for me and she waited and I said, no, you keep going, you keep going because I'll be a while. So I did my best, but I realized this is not good and it'll take me, I don't know, take me an hour to get down and everyone's down there in three minutes down to the, uh, down to the lodge. So I took my skis off, walked back up to the, to the top station on the lift and I said to the lifty, who who was actually a Kiwi, uh, I just I want to get back down. He said, "Well, there's no downloading on this lift." And I said, "Well, what do you mean? I just want to get back down." I said, "I said to him, well, how am I going to get down?'" And he pointed at my skis. He said, "We'll use those." And I said to him, "I can't ski." And so he said, "Well, okay." So he said, "Well, I can score, get the ski patrol to come up here, and we can put you in a toboggan, and we can take you down that way." Now. The context is that I'm the newly appointed VGM <laughs> of that venue, and luckily no one knew who I was. Luckily, luckily none of the lefties knew who I was, and because uh, that was that wouldn't have been a good look. In the end, I said, "No, no, it's okay. I'll uh, I'll figure out how to get back down." So I put the skis on and went down, and 
but I think he, how, how ironic is this? I'm the new VGM at this venue and I can't ski and I realise that I, I need to be able to ski because, you know, at Aquatics I could walk around the venue. I knew every inch of the, of the venue and I knew where everything was and how it was going to operate. But I knew that to, to be a decent VGM, if, if 90% of the venue I've never been on, I've never seen, um, I can't support sport. If, I, if my perspective is only from the base area, that doesn't make me a really good v, a VGM. So when Spencer's talking to me about he needs something on on uh, one part of the course at one of the jumps, if I haven't been there, I, I don't fully understand it. So that, that wasn't the way I wanted to work. So I learned to ski, although not well, but I could uh, I could get down. And But that was an embarrassing part, that <laughs> skiing for the first time at what was my venue, and I didn't want people to know that, you know, who is this clown? He can't even ski. So, <laughs> yeah, but no one knew that. So I was incognito that day. <laughs> well, we'll all know now. We, we all know, know now. Exactly right. We all know now. The cat's out of the bag. Yeah, yeah. Now, I do have to say that uh, when we talked with Eric last week, he said that you, as a venue general manager, wanted to ski the downhill course. You wanted to become familiar with it, and that he took you down that course. Why don't you tell us about how that went? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call it skiing, but uh, <laughs> he did, and. Um, uh, and it was race ready. So when, when we say it's race ready, it's, you know, we've got the base, we've got the base of snow, you know, which is usually about, you know, at least 50 centimetres, but, but up to a metre if we can get it. And then it's water injected. So that's, this is when the course crew go across and then literally inject water into the course to make it rock hard. And the harder it is, the the more it stands up for the, the 60 or 70 or 80 downhills that come down so it doesn't get chopped up too much. Um, so, yeah, we went. He took me. And he's a great teacher, and and he's really patient. And uh, uh, but you know, we we'd ski and we'd stop, we'd ski and we'd stop. And um, because Herbig would say, you know, you're fighting the mountain. Yeah, my legs would die because I'm literally, I'm not what you call a graceful skier. I'm like a, a rug, ex rugby player on skis, and I'm sort of like it's a real physical event for me when I go skiing, which just makes it exhausting. So when you when you're skiing the two point eight miles. Um, and you're fighting it, your, your, your legs burn. So, so we, we'd ski and we'd stop and we'd chat about stuff and he'd, he'd, he'd point out stuff to me, which was, which was amazing. But I did it. Um, was it frightening? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a frightening, it's a frightening course. And, um, but it gave me a great appreciation and it was something I was determined to do. And, you know, we took, um, you, you mentioned about 9-11 and uh, President Bush at the time sent across Attorney General Ashcroft just before the games that most people would remember to, to make a decision whether, you know, are we ready, are we good to go? And uh, and Attorney General Ashcroft, he came to Snow Basin, so he wanted to come to Snow Basin. He wanted to, one of the venues that he was going to assess and, and go back to Washington and say, we're all good, we're ready to go. And he brought his wife and um, – so I met with the Secret Service and 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 I said, well, where does he, what does he want to do? And he said, well, he wants to meet with you and he wants to meet with the competition manager and then he wants to go for a ski. He wants to ski the course because he hasn't had a day off since 9-11. So, and this was on a Saturday. It was about two weeks before the Games. And so he turns up um, with the Secret Service detail, about 30 or 40 Secret Service guys. And really lovely guy, really, really nice guy and uh, – you know, we gave him a briefing. I spoke about the venue ops. Spence spoke about the sport, the competition, 
um, in our trailer, and then we we went to go skiing. And the plan was that we we would take the chairlift up, um, and then we would go the gondola up to the top, and then come back into the gondola, and then ski the side of the course, but not on the course. So we'd do the the cat track, and which will allow us to get to certain parts of the course, but not on it because it was challenging. And I'd said to his Secret Service guys, I said, "You you guys have to go wherever you guys right." And they said, "Yep." And some of these guys had come from DC, and some of the guys were local. And I said, well, "Can you ski?" And most of them said, "Well, yeah, I can, but I haven't skied. I've skied once, and that was twenty years ago in Vermont." And anyway, we we went on the course. Uh, we didn't go on the cat track; it was on the course. So they went up into the gondola, went to the starter, and they came down the course, which was not the plan. And John could ski, but his wife wasn't great, and half of his detail were falling over. It was like Keystone Cops, and they had they had weapons. They were carrying weapons, and you know. But if there was anything that went wrong, they were they were more worried about <laughs> looking after themselves and looking out there because they couldn't really ski. But we stopped at one point on the course, and and it was really steep. And Spence is talking to Attorney General Ashcroft about you know what the athletes will be doing, where the gate will be, um, the speed they'll be doing, and just trying to set the scene. And at that point, um, John Ashcroft's wife slipped, and we were. It was steep, and and she slipped, and it was ice because it was race ready. We didn't have the safety, we didn't have any of the fencing up, but we but the course was injected, so she slipped, and she she fell, and she was sliding and and going really quick, and she cut she slid about fifteen or twenty feet, and Spence Eccles caught her between his legs, and had he not been there, she would have been into the trees, and it was a fair way down into the trees, but that's where she would have stopped. And it was a moment there. It was like, gee, it, it was one of those things that it reminded everyone that this is not a. You, you need to be aware of what you're doing up here. It's not. Uh, it's not got, as I say to people, playing a game of tennis, where if you don't like it, you can just walk off. When you're when you're doing sort of alpine skiing, it's you, you got to be aware and you got to you got to take some care. But um, that, that was an interesting time with him. A great guy, but um, yeah, it, it could have been a lot different. Well, I'm glad that uh, Spence was there to catch her. I mean, who who knows what would have happened if she just continued sliding down the mountain and into the trees? And you're right, the downhill and the Super G courses, I mean, the athletes attain such incredible speeds. If they do crash, it is spectacularly awful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looking with crash. Were there any really bad crashes and injuries there at Snow Basin during the games? We, I, you know, I, I don't think so. I mean, we, we had a lot of athletes pack it in. Um we did have, and I'm just racking my brain. Well, the, yeah, the answer to your question is yes. So, um, I remember uh, it was about a week or so before the games, and the way it works in alpine skiing is you you have the you have the race course and you have you have training areas and you have warm up areas, and because it's, because safety is such an important part of of alpine skiing, the controls you have around access to the field of play, access to training areas are really strict. Because the speeds that they're doing, so um, every day at about five o'clock, we'd have a team captains meeting, which would be um, where the the IF um, would would give a briefing with Spence to the teams and say, "Okay, here's the weather forecast for tomorrow. Um, this is the this is the this is what we're going to be doing. Um, this is this is what training areas are open. This is what time they're open. 
um, these are the areas that are closed tomorrow because we're doing uh, the snowcats are working there. So safety was really important. Access to the field of play, um, access to training areas, the times when teams could access it um, were really important. So I get this call one day. Um, I'm in my trailer, and the first call I get was um, an athlete's crashed on a. Well, the, the call I got was an athlete's hit a snowcat on the training course. And you think, so that's the information I got. And you think, well, how does that happen? If How is there a, a snowcat and uh, an athlete on a training course at the same time? Because that's, that's the worst thing that you can do. If there's athletes on there, there's no equipment. Um, if there's equipment on there, there's no athletes. But the, what I was told was an athlete's hit a snowcat. And so over the next 10, 15, 20 minutes, I started to get more information about what had happened. And, and what had happened was that the training course was closed. Um, it had been told, we'd been told in the team captain's meeting the day before that training course is closed tomorrow between this time and this time. There's only cats on there. So what had happened was this, uh, this athlete, a member of the Canadian um, national team, he, he, he got under the fence, got under the rope and went onto the training area because he thought, this is great. There's no one on here. The snow looks fantastic. What he, well, he, he knew that the course was closed, but he, but he chose to, to get on there anyway. So what happened was he's, he's, he's skiing down, he's going fast and there's a winch cat on the course. Now the winch cat based on the angle of the, the cat, the slope, um, the, the cable at this point was about 18 inches off the snow. So this Canadian athlete's tearing down the course and then he sees the, 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 the cable and he, try, he can't stop, but he tries to jump the cable. And what happened was the cable caught him at just the top of his boot, broke his leg. So, so this was all unfolding over the next 20 minutes. I was getting information about, okay, so first thing that we hear is an athlete's hit a snowcat, and then we think, well, how does that happen? And we, then we think more of the story unfolds. Well, he went under the fence, and then he got on the course. The course was closed, but he got on there. He went on there anyway. You know, it's a tragic accident, um, but his games were done. And, and that's, you know, an example or it does two things. One, it tells you how dangerous the sport can be. But secondly, you know, the importance of following the, the safety and, and the briefings that are there, they're there for a reason. And, and it taught me really quickly that, you know, to deal with, it, deal with an incident like that. And, and when you first deal with it, you, you don't have much information and you just assume that, well, there's been, how does it happen that an athlete skis in or a cat? But, um, yeah, I, I think that was a reminder for me that it's a dangerous sport. You've got to take it seriously, not that we didn't. But it's just a reminder that, you know, things, things can go wrong. And that's probably the worst one I've seen because, you know, his, his games were done. Wow. No, no doubt. Well, clearly you and your team took your jobs very, very seriously. But did you get any downtime? Were you able to see any competitions during the games at all? Or was it everything you were just, you were just totally buried in your work? Well, uh, yes and no. The, because I was running Snow Basin, so um we had downhill and super g so we didn't have all of the we didn't have the the tech events so we didn't have gs and slalom so our we had six days of competition over the the 13 or 14 days of the games uh whatever the, the real number was but 
we only had six days of competition at, at Snow Basin. So, and we were finished pretty early. So we were largely finished um, by the end of the first week. Had a couple of days where we had to postpone, but basically by the end of the first week, we were done. I was, Anna, my fiance at the time, was really looking forward to me finishing at the end of Snow Basin because I'd, I'd be leaving home at about 3.30 in the morning from the from uh, downtown Salt Lake, so for the avenues where we lived, which was a great place in the Canyon Road Towers. I'd drive up to Snow Basin at about 3.30 in the morning and then I'd be home you know, by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and sort of do that every day, 3 or 4 o'clock. But for the first two days after the games, when Anna thought that, you know, I would be going around and seeing competition, I was asleep for two days. I was just exhausted. I think I was mentally exhausted. I was physically exhausted. But after those two days, um, we were able to get around and see some some, some competition, particularly down in, down in Salt Lake. And, you know, and, of course, the whole Stephen Bradbury thing, didn't see that but uh, but heard about it. But, yeah, we saw great competition. But I think – and it's always been the same for every game that I've worked on. You know, you, people say you must see some amazing competition. I said, yeah, you do. Um, you get to see everything. and um, But you're really distracted. And I said, that's the difference. You can't really enjoy it because you're waiting for it to be done. You're waiting for it to be done that no one got hurt, no one got injured. Uh, there's nothing disastrous happened. So, yes, you get to see everything, but at the same time, you're, you're really distracted because you're worrying about the things that you need to do and the things that could go wrong. So it's a, the context is a little bit different, so you can't fully, you can't fully appreciate it. But I, I remember seeing two things from Salt Lake. Um, I remember seeing Bodie Miller ski, and he, he should have crashed in this particular point at Snow Basin. And he recovered. He was on the outside of one ski, and the other ski was off the ground. And he was on the outside of one ski, doing this unbelievable turn. He should have crashed. He 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 couldn't have stayed upright, but he did. And it told me what an amazing athlete that he was to recover from from what from the position that he was in. And the other thing that I would get to see, you know, so, so I saw amazing athletes like him. I saw amazing athlete like uh, Jana Jana uh, Janika Kostelic. Who won four medals at Snow Basin, you know, so three gold and a, and a silver, I think. So she got a medal in every event and, you know, won three of them. So she was an amazing athlete. But the the athletes that really stood it out for me um, were during the Paralympics. And it was the first time I'd seen, ever seen a blind skier. So the the athlete that's, that's visually impaired um, skis with a um, skis with a guide. And the guide has a chest pack on and a speaker, and and the guide is there, um, telling the athlete turn left, turn left, sharp left, you know, what, whatever it is or however they say it. But the athlete can't see, and they're totally reliant on the on the guide in front who's talking into a speaker and then telling them about the terrain that's coming up and the type of turn they've got to do. And I saw that live up on the course, and um, and for me, I thought that is unbelievable. They can't see, and, and skiing at Snow Basin was probably not a bad thing that you couldn't see what's coming up. But I, I really thought I looked at those athletes, the sit skiers as well, and I thought, you know what, and these guys are fearless, and they're dealing with the challenge that you know the able bods during the, the Olympics, they're dealing with the challenge on the hill, but the Paralympians are dealing with you know some physical um, challenges as well, and and it's just next level stuff, and. You know the way that they just get in there and they don't complain it was that, that was that was probably an amazing 
memory for me is that there's the Paralympic athletes, you know, something I've never forgotten. Uh, you're right. Those are amazing athletes and the things they can do are incredible. Are the Paralympians then your goosebump moment or do you have another goosebump moment on your list to share? No, I think, um, I, you know, the, well, the other goosebump moment, which was a, which was a goosebump moment, we had, um, you know, the, the way that we did uh, security and, and spectators coming into the venue was that the plan was that Dan and Ogden um, and at, um, uh, you know, about eight miles and about three miles away um, uh, from the venue, spectators drive, they'd go through security and they'd get on a clean bus and come to the venue. <clears throat> Excuse me. So by the time they got to the venue, they'd already done the mag and bag, the security search offsite. So they came in on a clean bus. On this particular day, um, and we had about 250 buses doing rotation, you know, in about three hours. So we had buses just busting through and, and coming through. So it was really, really busy. Anyway, long story short, the, there was buses coming from Salt Lake that were dirty. So you could you could either drive your car to a park and ride, or you could get a bus from downtown Salt Lake uh, that was a games bus, but it was dirty. That bus would then drive you to uh, down to Ogden, uh, the two locations we had offsite. From a dirty bus, go through security, and then get a clean bus that had been security searched. These buses had different you know VAPs, different um, access and parking uh, vehicle access and parking permits. One particular bus driving from Salt Lake dirty bus, didn't go to one of these uh, park and ride locations. It thought, well, I'm going to Snow Basin, so I'm going to Snow Basin. Driver didn't really know. So he he drove up to Snow Basin on a dirty bus. It was a games bus, but all of the spectators on there had not been security searched. So this bus pulls into Snow Basin, and all of these 50 spectators who have not been security searched get off and spread into the venue. Now. As Murphy's Law would have it, I was doing a tour of um, Secret Service personnel that day. So there, there was about 30, 30 of them from DC, so really high-level um, Secret Service guys. I get a call from my venue commander, who was the local sheriff, great guy. And he said, Adam, where are you? And I told him, I said, Terry, I'm up here. And he said, well, can you come down to, can you get, come down to the... Um, uh, the bus drop-off area, which has got a bit of a problem. So sure. So I go down there. He's there surrounded by about these 30 Secret Service guys, really senior guys. He told me what had happened. He said, you know, this one of the guys has just seen one of the buses that was a dirty bus come through and it was hadn't been screened and all the spectators um, got it. And at that point, um, one of the senior security uh, uh, secret service guys said, well, we have to evacuate. And I thought, oh, shit. Okay. It was in the context of 9-11, after 9-11, as we all know, the venue was full. We were, the race was underway. So it was being broadcast around the world to the 3 billion or so people uh, watching it. I think it was the, the women's uh, downhill. And I'd just been told by the secret service that what had happened 50 people have gone into the venue unscreened. So there's a security breach. We have to evacuate the venue. I mean, shit, what do I say? And I realized I got about 
I, I sort of realize, well, I'm one, I'm an Australian, so that, you know, I, I have to be careful what I say and how I say it. Um, but what do I say? And and at that point, as a VGM, you know, the VGM's in charge when things are going well. During routine operations, normal ops, the VGM's in charge. But when when it's a, a public safety incident, security incident, the command and control shifts from the VGM to the venue commander. So if he tells me or she tells me we're going to evacuate, I got no choice anymore. But I thought I've got a few seconds here maybe to maybe not jump to that conclusion straight away, but let's maybe just think about it for one second. I said, okay. I said, okay. I said, maybe can we just take a second to look at this? Um, I'll just say a couple of things and then then you decide. So one, I said, maybe this mitigates the risk somewhat or somehow. I said, one, we, it was an Olympic bus. So we, it had a VAP. Yes, it didn't go through security, but we knew it was one of ours. That's the first one. I said, two, every every spectator that got on the bus, we, we checked their ticket at the to get on the bus. They have to have an Olympic ticket, and they did for Snow Basin for that day. So it's an Olympic bus. Dirty, yes, but it's an Olympic bus, one of ours. Every spectator got on the ticket, got on with the ticket. Three, every spectator that buys a ticket coming to a venue knows that they'll be subject to a security search prior to coming into the venue. The fact that that didn't happen, they could not have predicted that. And I said, maybe those three factors mitigate the risk somewhat. And then literally I, 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 I sort of step, took a step back and then, and then I let them talk about it. And they kicked it around and I thought, well, that's all I can say. I can't say we're not going to evacuate because that's not my call anymore. But I just knew the ramifications. I just wanted them to think through it and to maybe help position it in such a way that they had all the, all the, all the facts. Anyway, they kicked it around. They said, okay. And I think I might have said also the worst thing, it might have been a backpack. Someone might have been carrying a backpack. Not a great day of something in there, but it's not it's not a car bomb. It's you know, it's not something like that. So still not great either way. But um I think I said that. Anyway, they kicked it around and they said, Okay. All right, we won't evacuate. I thought, oh, shit, okay. We'll do at the end of the session, we'll we'll get the bomb squad to run through the the grandstand and forget the the uh the, the bomb dogs to see if they can find anything. And that's what we did. So it was a great example of an acceptance of some risk, understanding the scenario or the, the actual scenario of the situation and to accept some risk based on what's likely to happen and what's the, the probability, you know, um, and that's what we did. And nothing was found, but really for the next hour, any loud noise that went off, we were all on edge. And it's one of those things that, you know, it worked, but had something gone wrong, um, it would have been the wrong decision. I mean, you can look at these things through the prism of time and had something happened. We, we could still demonstrate, though, that we went through a, a thought process. That, um, we, we, you can't avoid all, all risk. And we thought we have to be rational and sensible and practical about this. Had we had we um, evacuated, there's probably and, and no one would ever know, but there'd be probably other. Um, it, it, it'd get all the crazies out there who want to do some uh, some hoaxes and some bomb threats for the Olympics, and you know we had those for sure. But that would have been the news, you know. 
Snow Basin evacuates Gams 2002, you know, do we, you know, so it, it wouldn't have been a good story. That didn't mean we shouldn't have done it, but I think the approach that we took to, to to go through a bit of a thoughtful process to really assess the 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 situation, assess the risk, um, was probably was the right approach. But still, we were a bit nervous. Understandably so, but uh, that's very quick, but rational, reasonable, and methodical thinking on your part. So well done. That was my goosebump moment. It wasn't. Uh, most people will be talking about uh, when I saw, when I met someone or I saw the gold medal, but that was a goosebump thing. That oh my god, I better get this right. But um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I was like a duck on water. Sorry, Bradbury, you did well, <laughs> but you're not my goosebump moment. Well, you mentioned the Olympic Games, the Paralympic Games. They end, so we'll end. What's next? What do you go and do? And what are some things that you've learned along the way that become or they have become for you guiding principles that not only have helped you, but you think could also be helpful to others? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. I think one of the ones that I've tried to do and I get um, is listen to great people. So, you know, work with great people and, and surround yourself with people who make you better. Um, that's what I try and do. But the, 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 Well, that's what I want to do. But one of the ones that I really try and follow is I, I remember this expression. Um, you have two ears and you have one mouth. Use them in that proportion. So listen twice as much as you speak. And, and people that know me are probably smiling. So, well, you know, Adam can talk. And, um, but, and that's true. But one of the things I was really conscious of when I came to Salt Lake is I wanted to listen and I needed people to understand and, and to create to create the perception and to get them to understand that I would listen. I'm not going to come in and speak twice as much as I listen. So two ears and one mouth. And I think you, you're more successful, I think, in lots of situations if you are prepared to listen. Listen to the people that know. Listen to, you know, the Finn Gundersons of the world, the Callum Clarks, the, the Herbig Demshars, the Spence Eccles. You know, it doesn't mean you listen to everyone, but you listen. You, you find the people and, and you listen. And so I try and do that. Um, th that's probably the first one for me, and I try and uh, I try and follow that. Um, I think if if you like what you do, uh, you're lucky, and and try and do that, and try and like what you do. But surround yourself with great people, and I think that's why I keep coming back to the Olympics: is that the the friendships you form um, under what is a an extreme circumstance. It's a pressure cooker. And the, and the relationships you, you form in those sort of pressure cooker environments are the ones that will last forever. You know, Hervig, despite the start we I had with Hervig when he, you know, when he, you know, when I was this fucking Australian who'd come from, he knew nothing about snow. He, he then became, you know, uh, the godfather to my daughter. And so there's a, there was a transition that, uh, you know, or I guess a, a friendship that developed over time. Um, and, for me, that's what the games are about. You go through something extreme together. You work with fantastic people, and you work with people that are like-minded. They tend to be all very similar, sort of A-type personalities. They're used to getting the job done. They'll do whatever it takes to get done. So I like working with people like that. Um, and I think family comes first. I think out of all of that, you know, two ears and one mouth, work with great people, um, like what you do. you got to do all those things, and you're lucky if you can. Um, but family for me is the most important. 
And there's certainly been, I guess, opportunities that I've not taken up since Salt Lake that that would have impacted the family, and uh, and that I wasn't prepared to do. Um, so you know, that's a balancing act. It's, you know, we we can't always do that, but I've tried to do that. And um, yeah, for for me, family is the the most important, and uh, you know, yeah, they're the most important. So. Um, would I do snow basin again? Would I do uh, Salt Lake again? Absolutely. You know, in a heartbeat, it's it's one of the special places in in, in my life. Um, Salt Lake and Park City. Uh, we've brought the kids back there since, which has been really special. You know, from a place that Anne and I started out as a married couple. Um, we sent Henry, our son, Henry, sixteen. He went and stayed with Chris Crowley last uh, last February for for two weeks to go skiing. He's a mad keen skier. And uh, so Chris uh, took care of him for two weeks. So I put him on a plane. He flew across the US on his own. Chris met him at the at the at uh, Salt Lake Airport. So that's for me, for Anna and I. It's the sort of the, ne- the connecting our generation to the next generation. And you know, um, Henry's friends with with Crowley's kids, and they go- went skiing together. And so that's a, a really, you know, uh, Herbie helped him out with skiing. Um, down at um, Woodward, which was just beautiful, and I think that's that's the stuff I love. I mean, my, my best friends are from the games, um, the the deepest friendships from the games. So that's that's pretty special, and the kids know that. And yeah, it's been nice. Well, that's beautiful. And who knows, we might have another games in Salt Lake. Yes, so, yes. You know what? There might be another venue that needs some help. Uh, there may be some help that's required by the organizing committee. So who knows what will happen. Yeah, Maybe well, absolutely, absolutely. to get the band back together. Absolutely. All right. Well, Adam, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to have you spend an hour with us reminiscing about Salt Lake 2002. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing now with the IOC or other major events, or if they just want to swap stories about Salt Lake or other games that you've worked on, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Yeah, email. So, you know, info at adamgray.com.au. Um We've also got a company with Crowley called Jetstream Events. Uh, we're trying to continue the legacy of trying to assist major event planning. So JetstreamEvents.com. Um, so either of those two ways. But you know, I love being involved, love helping, and uh, you know, it's what it's why I keep still doing what I'm doing. This is major events and Olympics in particular. All right, fantastic, Adam. Thank you so much, listeners. Please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon, Adam. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Christian. 